Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's episode of the Crazy Money Podcast. My name is Paul Ollinger. I am happy that you are here. I am happy that I am here. I am grateful for my life. I am grateful for my health. I am grateful for my blessings. Thank you for being a part of this. Today, we're going to get into the generational differences in our approach to money via a conversation with Dara Brustein. Dara, in my mind, is the ultimate millennial. Not because she writes, travels the world, and has a weekly video series with Deepak Chopra, Yes, Deepak Chopra. It's called Diving Deep with Deepak and Dara. That's a lot of Ds. Alliteration is important to millennials. But while she does both of these things, all of these things, writes, travels, talks to the world's greatest guide on Eastern philosophy and meditation and things, while she does all these things, I think she's the ultimate millennial because she uses money as a tool to live the life she wants to live and then uses that life to make even more money. And damn it if she's not succeeding at it. In addition to her work with Deepak Chopra, that Deepak Chopra, yeah, Dara writes a Forbes Women column for which she has interviewed Bill Belichick, Guy Kawasaki, Shaquille O'Neal, Bobby Brown, and many, many more. She has a custom-produced 20-plus-hour digital video series, Summit, on how to live a curated life, and her paper, 55 Questions to Break the Ice, has been downloaded over a million times. A million. A link to that is in the show notes. What's interesting about this to me is I was raised by Depression-era parents, all right? I was raised to live very straightforward, militaristic corporate lifestyle. Like, my dad didn't have a ton of corporate advice, but his advice was basically like, get a college degree, go get a job, work your ass off for 50 years, then retire and die. That's basically the career advice that my generation got from the World War II generation. That greatest generation that Tom Brokaw talked about, well, their career advice wasn't always the greatest, Whether or not I actually agreed with all of it, I certainly internalized it and I lived it up to the point where I quit my corporate career and chased a career in comedy. But I still feel like these are obligations that all of us should be locked into. And I think that this is one of the things that's different about millennials. Millennials were raised by hippie baby boomers who were too busy smoking pot to not give their kids all the love and affection that they deserve to a fault almost, right? I was raised on fear and deprivation. Millennials were raised on adoration and Adderall. And yeah, this is kind of a bit. It's a bit, but just bear with me, okay? They were raised on adoration and Adderall as if their parents said, you could achieve anything you want to achieve, and here's a pill to make sure that you do, all right? Now go make something of yourself, millennial. I don't want to hear about your anxiety and depression. Go make something of yourself, and it needs to be unique, It can't just be about how much money you make. It needs to be unique and expression of yourself. I never thought about work as an expression of who I was. I thought about work as a way to obtain a house on a cul-de-sac and a Buick LeSabre. My corporate dreams in college were to be a bank loan officer so that I could drive a Buick LeSabre and have an office with a credenza. That's what I wanted. Mark Zuckerberg's dreams were to build an app to connect humankind. And I'm like, but if I don't have a credenza, where am I going to put my fax machine? And it is with that rigid mind, that horrifically rigid mind of mine, that I have a conversation with Dara, who dares, get it, who dares to live life on her own terms, who dares to forego the corporate lifestyle and take the risk of creating her own brand for herself. Now, let's be honest, Dara comes from a pretty privileged background, but nevertheless, she could be using that privilege to do a lot of different things. And what she's doing is trying to create a brand around herself and provide value to other people in the meantime. Perhaps I have that backwards. 
perhaps she's trying to provide value to other people by creating a brand that is all about her. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think Dara is a very interesting person. I hope you will find her the same. Here you go. But a lot of it had to do with the reputational equity of my friend, Mm -hmm. that we are the company we keep. And when someone is willing to put themselves on the line for you, that speaks a lot, especially when the other person already knows, likes, and trusts them. So the fact that Deepak and Rebecca already had this deep relationship Mm -hmm. and she came in and said, listen, you should know Dara, it was without question. He just said yes. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. Welcome to the Crazy Money Broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we are with Dara Brewstein here in Midtown, Atlanta, Georgia. Dara, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. Okay, Dara, you and I are sitting next to each other on a plane. We start chatting, and I ask you, what do you do? How do you answer this question? Probably put my headphones back in. Yes, well, (laughs) a lot of people do their best to avoid me on planes. I look like a a chatty snorer. That's who I am. (laughs) So you either talk to me or you listen to me snore. Ooh, so so I guess this is a would you rather scenario, and I would yes. choose to talk to you. Than well, you're talking to me now, and so I have you not yes, just chatting, this is captive playing conversation. This is so, great, but so I've, I've been avoiding the question. The reason I'm avoiding it is because I actually really hate that question, and not think you teed it up for me on purpose, knowing well, yes, I did that I hate that question. Well, I don't know that you hate it. Well, we'll get to why I asked it. Okay. How do you answer it? So. How I answer is completely circumstantial. In the case of an airplane, I'd probably be a little bit cagey and I'd probably just say I'm an entrepreneur and an author mm-hmm. and see if you actually bite and want to know more. And expect that I'm not going to ask you what like what the hell that means. Yeah. Or if you're just like, cool. And it was just polite banter. <laughs> and then it would depend from there. If we were in other circumstances, it might change depending on the environment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on a plane, you just want to sort of avoid conversation unless I'm intent on having it. It's ironic. I love to talk to strangers, but on airplanes, I love the peace and quiet and I love to write on airplanes. So I actually don't strike up conversation very often with Mm -hmm. my plane seat mate. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) So So if we're not on an airplane, (laughs) we're in line at McDonald's. Nice. Definitely Uh, my hangout. Okay. Let's go back to (laughs) entrepreneur and author. Yes. What does that mean? Because entrepreneur author, I'm like, Bullshit. What does that mean? Well, so tactically, it means that I own a few businesses, mm-hmm. one in credit card processing, okay. one in networking events for young professionals, right. and more recently, one that creates much content for people who are looking to get unstuck or have more fulfillment in their lives and help them build businesses to fund what their true dreams are and networks to support that. Mm-hmm. And on the book side, I wrote a children's book on financial literacy. So that's where I get the author moniker. I see. All yes. right. Almost as interesting as a book about why you should go to business school, but not quite, but (laughs) not quite. I'll take that second place. All right, let's unpack the entrepreneurship thing because I'm going to go ahead and show my hand here. I'm a Gen X person who looks at millennials and the audacity to not follow a traditional career path. And I think, who the hell do you think you are to have a better life than me? Mm. Don't you have to pay your dues and go through the same corporate bullshit that everybody else had to trudge through? to find financial independence while also becoming completely 
addicted to the corporate lifestyle. <laughs> Who are you to think that, that you can do it your own way? I mean, hilariously, your voice is the exact voice that I heard and had people telling me when I had graduated from college mm -hmm. and things weren't working out so well for me in corporate America. I was getting laid off over and over again. And people kept saying to me, oh, you're just impatient. You're just a millennial. You're so entitled. Wait your turn. Climb the ladder. Right. Exactly like you're saying. Yeah. And I believed them until I got laid off so many times because of the recession that was going on that I thought, how dare they dictate to me what's going to work when clearly this isn't working. And I know myself better than these people who don't know me very well know me. And I know that I am quite patient. I know that it has nothing to do with everything that they have surmised that actually has to do with what I deep down know that I am interested in, which is starting my own business. What kind of companies did you get laid off from? <laughs> the first one is in fashion. I started at a fashion wholesaler where I sold expensive jeans to retailers in the Southeast. Mm -hmm. The second was a high-end home audio video company selling super expensive home theater and home automation systems. Mm -hmm. And I got laid off as a generous word for it. I'll say I got hours cut back on many part-time jobs during this time in retail sales, working as a personal assistant for someone, doing everything from writing copy for her website to ripping drywall and carpeting out of her investment properties mm -hmm. with her. And, you know, at the end of the day, they all just got dwindled down or I got totally let go. That sounds very HGTV. Yeah, except drywall out way of less sexy. Yeah. <laughs> baking cakes and ripping drywall. Okay. So you get laid off from these jobs and you're like, there's got to be a better way. Exactly. I really hoped that was the case because it didn't appear to be a good way, the way that it was happening. I did the stuff. I checked the boxes. You know, I went to school, I got the grades, I got the jobs, I got some cool titles here and there. And you got that monetizable religion degree. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Sure. The religion yes. Italian. I my research. Yeah, exactly. Religion and Italian dual degree are definitely what you want to jettison into the world. With. You're highly qualified to be the Pope. I was first Jewish female Pope. That would be pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I, I really would, have I, to be unique, you know, I'd take another look at Catholicism if there was a Jewish <laughs> female Pope. They're so open-minded. So you're like, it's time for me to try things my way. What happens? Well, I was terrified at this point. I hadn't been preparing for this. I wasn't expecting to jump into entrepreneurship at the age of 25 with a mortgage, with bills, with all of these things. Mm -hmm. But given the circumstances, I thought this is the better way. So at that point, I was really, really fortunate to have been born and raised with the person who became my business partner is my twin brother. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we shared a womb. We decided we could share a business and that business was credit card processing. And I was extra fortunate because I think one of the major stumbling blocks I see a lot of people who want to build a business struggle with is what is the business? I was definitely that person. I knew I wanted to have one, but didn't have an idea. And he came to me and he said, listen, I've been researching credit card processing. The brokerage model is unrepresented. I think you and I would work really great together and fill this void in this industry. Mm -hmm. And my initial reaction was, ew, like, how dare you? I am so disinterested in that. That sounds right. so unsexy. Sure. But then I really stopped and thought about it and realized all of the reasons why I could grow to love that and all of the foundational and fundamental elements that would consist in our day-to-day -day functions mm -hmm. that I could become passionate about it. And I was able to understand because I had known this person for my entire life that we could work great together and that we had complementary skill sets. So the cards sort of fell in the right place at the right time. And I said, yes. And that started the journey. 
Okay. How long ago did you start that business? 10 years. And is that how you pay your bills today? Is that the main reliable source of income for you? It is. We thus grew it into 38 states with a lot of ups and downs. We had some embezzlements. We had some clients we lost. Like Things were not easy, Mm -hmm. but that is how I pay my bills now. It is a residual based income, which I was very lucky to back my way into mm-hmm. because it set me up for a foundation to have the financial freedom and thus time freedom to build other things on top of it. Mailbox money. Robert Kiyosaki. That's right. <laughs> is that the uh, rich dad, pork dad guy? It is. We're in my office right now and oh. he's he's somewhere in here. I should know there that. He is, bottom if, I'm, shelf. if I'm doing a show on money, I should be able to speak yeah, more gotta- <laughs> fluently about all the guys who've written the, and, and women who have written the biggest books yes, in finance of all time. Rich dad, poor dad I've himself. read it. I've read it. Yeah. Just so we're talking, but I got I read that one in guy high school. Soccer. Actually, there it is. Another copy spotted. Wow. Multiple <laughs> copies. That's Brendan's copy. Rich dad, poor dad. Congratulations, sir. Okay. So you're making mailbox money and that was 10 years ago and you're putting tons of work into the, the business at that point. And when do you start transitioning into building Dara as a brand? I was putting in probably too much work. Admittedly, I was burning out. I was into the hustle grind mindset mm-hmm. and it was not anything that it was cracked up to be. And I actually really wish that I had not taken the advice to work so hard. I think the Whose business advice was that everyone's it was reading all the magazines. It's talking to the entrepreneurial friends. It's being in those circles of people who are bragging about the limited number of hours that they're sleeping at night. Mm-hmm. And I finally stepped back and realized I actually feel more creative and more energized. And my business does better when I'm in it less and I'm more fulfilled and whole when I'm stepping back in. And so it was around year six where we were finally in a place where I was making plenty of money and we were making it consistently. And I started to feel like I wasn't learning anymore Mm -hmm. and that there wasn't a lot more that I could learn at the quantity and speed that I really wanted to, to feel like it was a thing I wanted to pour that much time and energy into day after day. Mm -hmm. And at this point I was, gosh, if it was year six or seven, then I was year four or five into my second company network under 40. And I realized that that was the embodiment of my gifts that I know with certainty I was put on this planet to connect people for the betterment of both. And that allowed me to do it really tangibly and make money while doing it. But only for people over 40, if you're 50, go to hell. No, over 40 is encapsulating, (laughs) it's till the grave. It's what we have now. So at the time I had network under and network over 40 Oh, you did over 40 goes all the way to the grave. (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to connect with anybody who's over 60, let's say. So you want network 41 to 59 network. um, (laughs) Then again, I don't really want to connect with anybody who's 22 either. Yeah. So So you want that 41 to 59 range. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. With a band. I'll help you start that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So why did you start network under 40? A friend came to me and she had graduated from law school, actually became a practicing attorney, unlike some others we know. Right. And she moved back to Atlanta and she said, where do I make friends after college? Mm -hmm. Everywhere I'm going, I feel like I'm getting hit on, sold to, or everyone's my parents' age. And I just want (laughs) to make some friends. Right. What's wrong with that? Right. And I'm like, you must be really hot. (laughs) Sport and social club. But then again, that's what happens at sport and social club. Totally. Kevin's deal. Exactly. And I think, I think no matter where you go, there's likelihood that people are going to hit on each other. We're humans. But I think her point was super valid. And I had been really intertwined with the networking community in Atlanta, growing my credit card processing company up until that point. So I said, well, I love to connect people. This doesn't exist. I'll start it. 
Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, first event had 94 people, electric energy. Everyone said, we love this. Nothing exists like this. Will you do it again? What kind of an event was it? Just a happy hour. Super wow. simple. I didn't recreate the wheel, but I did make sure that the culture was about who you are first and what you do second so that people could understand this is about building rapport and friendship mm-hmm. before it is about a transaction or doing business. Okay. So we're sitting on a plane. I ask you who you are. That'd be weird. It would be weird. And that's definitely not a like, hey, tell me who you are. (laughs) But it's about asking other simple questions. Like, you know, I wrote a guide on this called the 55 best questions to ask to break the ice and really get to know someone. And I think it's important. And it's been downloaded 1.2 million times. And I think that's because people are so craving real connection. Give me a couple of good ones that are for that environment, because they go by mild, medium, and hot. Hot are definitely not for like, hey, I just met you at this networking event. Okay, all right. Mild are really simple. It's like, hey, what brought you here tonight? Or what's yeah. something you're excited about right now? Or mm-hmm. do you have a trip coming up or something that you're looking forward to in that way? Or what are you reading currently? Yes. Or, you know, things of that nature that are not that crazy. Yeah. But it takes you off of the, let me regurgitate to you my pitch sure. or my title. My LinkedIn rezo. Yeah, exactly. And lets you talk about something. And that's where the knowing someone can begin because you can leave clues. You can say things. And if I'm paying attention enough and not just thinking about what I want to say in response, then I can grab onto something and be like, oh, that's interesting. I want to know more. Oh, we have that in common and yeah. we can build from there. A good friend of mine, if he's listening to this, Dylan Parks, I hired him in 1998 or 99. He consistently gives me hell because I asked him in the interview, what are you reading and what's in your CD player? Because it was 1999. <laughs> I love it. You give people an opportunity to talk about themselves without asking, do you want to have babies? <laughs> totally. Right <laughs> off the bat, right? You don't start yeah, with like, jumping should we date? End. Exactly. So you start network under 40. How did you find these people to invite to your event? Well, there were 94, as I mentioned, 90 of whom were friends of mine to the first event. You have 90 friends? In Atlanta, turns out. Wow. So, and they were all under 40. So for me, it was really just, let me plant the room with people whom I know and Mm -hmm. who I can Mm -hmm. really implant with this idea of this is what the culture and the values are here. If you're into that, show up. And then a few of them invited some people. And so, like I said, that first one was just really great because people were like, wow, I haven't been in an environment like this. Because even, you know this, when you go to a mm-hmm. party, people are not that interested in meeting you. They're kind of like, I'm here to see my friends. I I'm not know, really here me? to, I mean, you're pretty electric. So you're magnetic. People want to meet you all the time. But so <laughs> I'll, I'll, bald guy I'll talk about away myself. From the seven layer dip? <laughs> when I go to a party, people are not that interested in meeting me. They're interested in seeing their friends. So and you're so creating they, a friendly space. Totally. It's just open. Mm-hmm. And there aren't that many environments like that. And mm-hmm. so people were into it. And from there, it was just a matter of, oh, you want to do this again? Great. Let me start another one. And it was super organic. A friend tells a friend, that friend tells a friend. And it grew to the point where our events were 400 to 600 people a month for many, many years. How many years are you into Network Under 40? Eight. Okay. So let's break down, I'm not trying to get into numbers here, but percentage wise (laughs) of your take-home pay, what does Network Under 40 contribute? What does the credit card company and what do your other ventures contribute? Yes, yeah, it's a great question. I never thought about it this way. I'm like thinking about the numbers in my head. It's a pie chart. So yeah, exactly. So equitable payments, the credit card processing company would be about 60%. Mm-hmm. And that actually, we're on a money podcast, so I'll talk about what that means for me. That is my operating, my savings, tax money. Like that's where all that comes from. Mm-hmm. 
And then network under 40 is, I'd say, about 25%. Mm-hmm. So where are we at that? Like 85. 85, thank you. So the remaining 15. You said, you said 60% for. Exactly. Right, okay. So the remaining 15% is going to come from more personal brand stuff. It's like speaking, mm-hmm. it's book, it's influencer stuff that pops up randomly. It's courses online. It's stuff like that, which is all a new endeavor. I want to understand how you want that mix to change or the pie to grow over yeah. time. I definitely want the pie to grow, not necessarily (laughs) to change dramatically. Although I do understand that when you have residual business, if you're not feeding into it as rapidly Mm -hmm. as you once did, that it will deplete at some point. So fair enough. Let's talk about this last piece of the income pie. The last piece of your work pie, as it were, is your personal brand business. Tell me how you got started in that. I got started about two years ago because I'd hit this point where I had realized I wasn't feeling as energized by my primary businesses anymore mm-hmm. and that they felt like they were on autopilot a little bit. Right. And I had this deep intuitive knowing that there was something next in my career and I couldn't shake it, which meant that I needed to slow down and quiet down enough to figure out what it was. And when I did that, I came to realize about six months after a lot of soul searching that really the thing that people were coming to me seeking more than any single other thing was asking the question, how do you live the life that you do? Mm -hmm. And it was this surreal question because I'm thinking, my life is not that special, it's not that different, but I realized what at the bottom of what they wanted was they wanted to have the freedom and flexibility to design their own lives. And I had been a student of this myself accidentally in the sense that I wasn't looking at it from how do I design this life, it was just, I want to live the most fulfilled life I can. I don't want to wait for the pot of gold at the end. I don't want to push everything off till later. Yet also says the girl whose financial advisor tells her to have more fun and save a little less. Mm-hmm. So I understand the dichotomy of this and that there's a polarity. Right. But I stopped and I said, you know what? I have the availability now financially and of my time to give back in this way. And I love to create content. I love to write. I love to do all the things that are of our digital era. And I thought, let me just start giving this to people. Mm -hmm. And they wanted it. They started flocking to it. And so I started charging for it. What is this that you're creating for people who don't know? It's a number of things, but it's simply the idea of intentionally designing your life, building businesses to fund it and networks to support it. And 99% of what I create is free. So it's in the format of Forbes articles, of Instagram caption posts, of a video series with Deepak Chopra, Mm -hmm. of writing a new book that will be out in a couple more years and creating some online things like a virtual summit that's available for pay. And like I said, most of it is free because I really believe that this is stuff that people need and I don't want it to have barriers to entry. So here's where it comes to what I was saying earlier before. This is like some of the things you were just talking about. These are the most millennial things I can even think about, right? And (laughs) and and, And I'm saying this, I've had some jokes in my act about millennials and half the audience would laugh and millennials would cringe because they basically demonstrated that I'm just an old out of touch man. (laughs) And I don't want to be old and out of touch, but I want to be self-aware to say the things you're talking about are things that people in my generation are just like, what? At least at your age. Because when I'm 25, 35, it's like, what am I going to do for a living? I'm going to get the highest paying job I can get. I'm going to work until I have a heart attack or until I retire and then play golf until I die. Yep, that's the that's my goal. career trajectory, and that's what success looks like. Totally. How dare you upset that? Totally. Why? I totally what gives get you it. the right to do that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I was in a sorority. It's like you want the pledges to come in and pay their dues and get hazed mm-hmm. and go through all the BS that you went through. Sure. I get that. Mm-hmm. How dare me? Like 
why should you want me to go through that when you came to the realization for yourself that it wasn't working? Yeah. Well, yes. Okay. You just stumped me. That's not fair. <laughs> I'm asking the damn questions here. Dear. I happened to get crazy lucky and work at Facebook when it was an early company. And then I have some financial optionality, which I think I could have had a lot earlier had I not lived a certain kind of a lifestyle or if I'd put my money towards other things or if I decided that I valued my weekends more than I valued a trip to Europe or something, right? But you came to this realization pretty early. Was there one thing that happened that made you see the light? It was that string of layoffs. Mm -hmm. It was just this quick learning of falling on my ass over and over right when I got out of school that no matter how many boxes I checked and how many things I did the quote unquote right way, yep. it wasn't panning out, mm -hmm. which really made me look very sharply at what I was doing and think, I have to question this. Mm -hmm. Your mission on your site is life by design, not by default. Yes. How does one begin a journey by building a life by design? Part of it is deconstructing these narratives that we've been told that success looks exactly how you described it or keeping up with the Kardashians and Joneses or if you can't afford a BMW, you're not working hard enough. Totally. And like you and I were talking about that, even when you get there, you often realize that wasn't fulfilling. Mm -hmm. Like you, like I actually have a BMW. Great. But when I got the BMW, the thing I said to myself was one, if this is the only car I ever get here to forth, that's enough. Mm -hmm. And also the excitement and enthusiasm of this will wear off the second you leave the lot. So do you want this because of other reasons as well? And are you prepared to make that decision knowing that? It said the same thing when I bought my first house. I just came to the reality that this thing isn't the end all be all and there's more to it than that. So going back to your question, it's important to deconstruct that and understand for yourself, what do I actually want? And this is a much harder question than it sounds. Mm -hmm. Because when you've been programmed your whole life to chase after these things and your parents and your peers or your spouse or your coworkers, your neighbors are all doing it one way, much like you said to me, Paul, they're not going to really love that you're going on your own path because it's going to reflect on them that maybe it's something they should consider for themselves, which often means having to have tough conversations or having to build new communities of friends around you. Right. But there's a lot of tricks and tools that I've used to figure this out for myself and share with other people. This one, I feel like I'm going to give the punchline to. So instead I'm actually going to do it to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're not going to do it because you don't have a pen and paper right now. But basically if we were doing this in a setting where you did, I would ask you to envision someone you love. So think about that person. You don't have to tell us who it is. I mm -hmm. feel like I'm a magician right now. Okay. And on a piece of paper in it's your the mind. the jack of spades. I love the jack of spades. <laughs> Damn it, you weren't just done. <laughs> so on a piece of paper in your mind, I mm -hmm. want you to daydream every single thing you could dream at the epitome of what you would hope for this person mm -hmm. to achieve, to experience, to feel, to access. And you would go on and on until you are truly out of stuff. And so we're going to fast forward. We're like on the baking show now. And we're going to bring the bunt right. cake out of the oven. Yes. So bunk cake is fully complete. You stop, you're fully there. I'm going to have you cross that person's name out. So Jack of Spades cross out and you're going to write Paul on top. Right. The reason you're going to do that is because we're all mirrors for each other. And because we often can dream for other people, what we cannot for ourselves. For sure. And it's so easy to want something for someone else. And so easy for us to immediately come up with the excuses and the fears and everything else when it comes to us. And well, I can't, or I don't, or someone else, or 
yes. whatever. So that's one really good exercise. Obviously now I've given you the punchline, so it's not as effective, but do it for someone else and let them experience that. Yeah. Some other ways to do it are simple things like, this sounds grotesque, deathbed exercises. Mm-hmm. Think about what are my values? What do I really hope when I look back at my life, I can say about it and how or not are my actions and decisions aligning with that? And if they're not, then it's time to make a change because when I look back to my 25 to 30 year old self building my first company, I was neglecting everything I said I valued. I said I valued personal wellness. I said I valued relationships. I said I valued, you know, lots of things. And I was ignoring all of them. Yeah just because I wanted to make this business successful because my atten- my identity was tied to it. Didn't work. Another thing that's been really helpful for me is to lean on the people in my network to mm-hmm. help reflect back on me things that I don't see it for myself, so my blind spots. For example? Well, there's an, there's an exercise I've created. It's the nine questions to ask your network to find your path. And so, you know, Paul, I would go to you and I would share these questions and say, listen, this is not a reciprocal exercise because I can't have you thinking, well, I can't be fully candid because she's gonna come back and tell me something. But it's things like, when am I my most most powerful? When am I my least powerful? Mm -hmm. What's something you know about me that you don't think I know about myself? What's something you wish for me in the next 12 months? And so on. And then you go through, you do 10 or 20 of these and you look for patterns and what can you see in them? And this stuff will help begin to enlighten for you stuff that maybe you've been sleeping on or Mm -hmm. putting in the back of your mind because it just didn't seem important or you took it for granted or fill in the blank. So I would ask my network, what do you think is my best trait, my sense of humor or my humility? For <laughs> you example, don't get to give them. A- well, I don't get to write it. Come on. <laughs> you don't get to give them. Nine a- questions of how many people, just whoever you think will give you good feedback. I think or 10 is minimum. Honest? It's a combination. You obviously want people who are going to be honest with you, but you also want to make sure you're blanketing a variety of people. Yeah. Because if I just go to my mom and dad and they know me in the same context, it's not that helpful. But I want to go to former or current coworkers, a business partner, right. if you have one, with friends who've known you at different stages. Sure. With You want to have that diversity of input. And I will say when I've done it, I've been really surprised that at the depth of stuff people have known about me, even when they haven't known me as well as I thought they did. Because mm-hmm. you really can tell a lot about people from certain interactions and people are paying attention in a great way. And so there's a lot you can learn. That's cool. I would actually like to see that questionnaire. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to put a link to it in the show notes. Perfect. What products do you have? It's Dara.co, correct? Yes. D-A-R-R-A-H.co. Dara like Farah. What materials do we do we find on this website of yours? In the free category, we've got <laughs> behind door number one. one. <laughs> we've got a lot of things. We've got a free masterclass with mm-hmm. Deepak Chopra and myself on living a more meaningful okay, life. Okay, so let's stop for one second. Yes. How the hell did you get to work with Deepak Chopra? So this Who is, are you again? Who are you to totally. have that kind of ambition? Yeah, how dare me? Well, it's a really interesting story and I hope that it's actually catalyzing for other people because Mm -hmm. I thought the same thing. Who am I to work or even like have a conversation with Deepak Chopra? So around this time last year, I made this decision that I was going to move my work a lot into this arena. And as part of that, I wanted to host a virtual summit, which is basically an online conference Mm -hmm. that would be free. And the reason I wanted to do that is I wanted to make it completely accessible. The only barrier to entry being a Wi-Fi connection. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, who do I want to headline this? And I had a list of the dream team and Deepak was on that list. Yep. So big believer in networks, big believer in giving centric relationships so that when it does come time for you to have a need that people are willing to open the door for you. So when this happened, I was able to get introduced to Deepak's publicist. 
It's a husband and wife team. They said, this sounds really interesting. We like your lineup. Who else is doing it? Right. <laughs> and I said, well, I've got Adam Grant and I've got your favorite Jen Sincero. Mm -hmm. And they said, that's great. Who else is doing it? So I said, hmm, I'm going to need to get the, the guns out. So I called my friend Rebecca, whom at the time of meeting her, I had no idea she had any affiliation with Deepak. But mm -hmm. through the course of our friendship, came to learn that she was formerly Deepak COO. Oh, wow. Cool. So I said, listen, Rebecca, here's where I am. If you would feel inclined to reach out to Deepak and let him know I'm legit, I would greatly appreciate it. About an hour later, she sent me a screenshot of her text to him. And shortly thereafter, he said yes. And soon after, I was interviewing him. And what's Rebecca's phone number? So yeah, all exactly. can call her to exactly. get hooked up with Deepak. Rebecca's in the witness protection program <laughs> currently. But so that was the beginning. And I actually thought that was the end as well. Until serendipitously, three months later, Chase Bank called me and they said, we want you to be an on-site correspondent at our upcoming summit in Atlanta and interview Deepak Chopra and Cam Newton. And I said... Absolutely. So I went, got to hang out with Deepak again. His publicist took a liking to me. They asked me to interview him several more times in 2018. Yep. And then at the very end of the year, the day after Christmas, I again followed my intuition. I had this in, this instinct that said, reach out to him and thank him for all the work that you all did together this year. Tell him that if he needs anything in 2019, you're here to support him. 15 minutes later, he wrote me back and he said, I was reflecting too, and I think you can help me. And that's what turned into our weekly video series that launched two weeks later. That's incredible. Yeah, so for anyone who thinks that these things are unattainable or out of reach, they're not. But it's really about putting an intention out, building networks to support you in them, and then sort of, this is very Buddhist, releasing the outcome and the way that it pans out. Because my intention was never, let me have a weekly video series with Deepak. Sure. But I did have an intention to bring his message to my audience and it all spun from there. That's incredible. And so to what do you attribute Deepak saying yes to you? I think it besides the fact that you actually asked. Well, yeah, that's a big piece of it, actually, that I hadn't even thought to say. But a lot of it had to do with the reputational equity of my friend, mm -hmm. that we are the company we keep. And when someone is willing to put themselves on the line for you, that speaks a lot, especially when the other person already knows, likes and trusts them. So the fact that Deepak and Rebecca already had this deep relationship mm -hmm. and she came in and said, listen, you should know Dara. It was without question. He just said yes. And that made it really simple. And interestingly, one of the videos we did on our series, he told me what his framework is for decision making. So now I understand that he said yes because of his three things. One is it was fun to do. He thought the person would be fun to do it with. Right. And it was of service to the world. Good enough framework for me. <laughs> exactly. So Deepak's not the only well-known person in your video series, in your virtual summit. It's stacked with talent. Thank you. From a variety of fields. Tell us a little bit about that. The virtual summit really breaks down these three tiers that I mentioned briefly. It's designing your life and defining success for yourself, getting over a lot of the hurdles, fears, stuckness, and then building a career or a business to integrate with it rather than consume it and finance what you want your life to be and figuring out what it's actually going to cost so you can reverse engineer the career business to do that. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, building the network in the community to support you to make it more fun and to open the doors to the success that you're seeking. And that all is laid out through these 45 speakers in the summit. So as mentioned, Deepak is one of them. Jensen Chero is really down and dirty on the community part and on the money part. Adam Grant does an incredible job about talking about career and generosity and all of this other stuff. And the list goes on and on and on. That's amazing. From the outside in, we'd met at this event, actually one of your Network Under 40 events. 
you remember the uh, comedy, the comedy roast? That was yeah. actually a charity fundraiser where you got to roast the city of Atlanta. That was so really thank fun. you for doing that. Was, thank you for having me. It was a super fun event a few years ago. And I'd seen you like around on the social networks or whatever. And then I went to your website. I wasn't aware you were doing the online forum or the stuff with Deepak. And I went back and I was like, oh my gosh, this stuff is amazing. Thank you. How did you get into that? But as I look at it, I go, wow, that's kind of similar to what a lot of people are trying to do and are empowered to do with social media and production tools like the Zoom recorder we're using right here. Is that the part of the pie that is the most meaningful to you? And how do you foresee growing that or investing in it over the next few years? That is definitely the part of the pie that I feel really invested in. Mm -hmm. It feels like the accumulation of everything I've been doing in my professional career so far. And I deeply like being able to use my gifts to tangibly know that there are positive outcomes for other people. And this is such a great way to do that where I'm constantly hearing feedback from people of, here's what I'm struggling with, can you help? Or this is how your stuff has helped me in these specific ways. And frankly, there is nothing more rewarding than that. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely where I'm going. So there'll be more online resources that are available over time. I'm writing another book on this. So in a couple of years time, that'll be out. I don't know what else will unfold. I actually would imagine there'll be more video content that'll come out with Deepak or mm -hmm. others. And I just look forward to seeing how it unfolds. What's the book about? Exactly this. It's the design your life, business to fund it, network to support it. Right. And how to. For me, it's all about how do you mix inspiration with activation? I am not one to just say like, let me talk from up here and tell you how I did all this. First, I think it's important to tell you like, this is not always easy. Here's this challenges. Here's my roadblocks and hurdles. Here's how other people have come and overcome these things. And then here's tangible and practical steps to move through it. How do you avoid being just some douchey internet self-help person? Well, I think some people might think that I'm douchey and self-helpy, but for me, I think I am really reticent to even ingest that information from people who I see that way. It does mm -hmm. not appeal to me. I don't like feeling like things are cheesy. I don't like feeling like things are from a mountaintop. I don't feel like it's untouchable. I don't like feeling like I'm being sold to. And it's like, hurry, scarcity, do this now. Like <laughs> I hate that. Yeah. And for me, that's not what it's about. Like this is coming from a place of realness. Like I truly want to help people. Mm -hmm. I truly enjoy doing it. Yep. And also I think when I look at the landscape and I had to do a landscape kind of market analysis before I decided to jump in a bit, mm -hmm. I realized there's kind of a few primary schools. You've got like the woo-woo, really spiritual leaders, which cool, that's them. Mm -hmm. You've got the like, I'm gonna call them out, like Lewis Howes, like a little more like bro-y, <laughs> uh, like Tim Ferriss There's a stuff. Tim Ferriss book right there yeah. on your shelf. Yeah, that's Brendan's. Like oh. I actually like- <laughs> That's her boyfriend. I, I actually really like Tim Ferriss and yeah. I think he and Lewis Howes both do great stuff in the world, but like they're also authentic to themselves. And like, yeah. I think their stuff is more like, with Tim specifically, it's let's get really meta and micro and get into the weeds. Let's take and some ice baths. Totally. Very Tony Robbins, mm -hmm. ice baths. And there's that. And then you've got on the other side, a little more like girly, everything's pink. We're kind of in this sorority. We call ourselves babes and mm -hmm. all this other stuff. And I'm not those things. Like my energy is equally masculine as is feminine. Mm -hmm. I'm a straight shooter. I'm from the Northeast. Like and for me to just keep it real and keep it true to myself attracts people that vibe with that. Whereas some people authentically vibe with that other stuff. And I think I had to come to realize that I am simply a vessel of a message mm -hmm. that some people can hear through me now at this moment right. or better than they can through others because of how they relate to me. 
and come to terms. Whereas other people are going to look at me and be like, can't stand that bitch. <laughs> no, come on. Nobody's going to say that. And yeah. Said it you you haven't gotten all my emails. No. What's the worst <laughs> thing people trolls. are saying to you? I get some really mean emails just saying things like, well, one is I like to write all of my email newsletters in lowercase. Some have aligned me to EE Cummings. I that. Yeah, I saw that. And exactly. it's just, frankly, it's my style. I was a photographer since I was in middle school. And yeah. anytime I'd have an art show, I would like yeah. paint my name all in lowercase. Like it's yeah. just always been my yeah. thing. I don't know why, but Hey, it's like, I'm being true to myself. And I have people write me and be like three paragraph long, I think you're illiterate. You must be an idiot. How dare you? And then they're like, but if you're actually illiterate, I'm really sorry. And I'm like, well, how am I illiterate if I wrote this? Yes. And and so things like that too. Yes. I have my bio on my website and I think I mentioned my cat chairman meow and I'll have people hate on my cat and like say, people are just mean sometimes and they'll come in for just about anything. So what do you think motivates people to hate so much? Is it jealousy? Pain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think jealousy could be a part of it, but people are hurting and I get that. And you know, the expression hurt people, hurt people. And nice. for me, it's hard. I take it personally, even though I know I shouldn't because my heart and soul is in this. Yeah. It was a lot easier for me to walk away from someone saying something mean to me when it was credit card processing, because I am not the product, right? but when I am the product and someone is mean about it, or they say something hateful or they say this sucks and I want a refund. That feels a lot more personal because in some way it is. Yeah. But I've also had to come to realize that it's not for everyone. Some of that's on me. I need to do a better job when I'm positioning things. And also when someone's coming at me with a tirade of some bullshit, like we talked about, yeah. that has nothing to do with me. That is a trigger from something else. And those I need to just be able to put away. And I am growing in that area because it's not easy. I am not successful enough to have any haters yet, but <laughs> just I do. wait, you know, you've marginally made it like I have just marginally when you get one hater. <laughs> That's right. Well, I do get people who unsubscribe from my, uh, from my email list Mini and haters. I know, and, and I know these people. That's the problem. You got to stop looking. That's, I know. I, I did used stop. to do I this with stop. Network Under 40 like, and I'd be so pained. And I was like, how dare you? <laughs> like, but, you but we're friends. The 60 hours you work every week, you don't want another email from yep, me. Yep. Come yeah. On. I just had to stop looking we've been talking about your career, but this is about money too. So I want to talk a little bit about where you come from and what money means to you. I read in your bio that you were raised on a historic horse farm outside of Philadelphia. So did your parents work on the horse farm and did they own the horse farm? They owned the horse farm. Okay. So you're just some rich kid who's doing what she wants to do. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, we all have to own where we came from. And I definitely come from a place of privilege where I had a lot of opportunity afforded to me. I didn't leave college with debt and those things definitely set me on a path that not everyone is available to. And I own that. What did you want to do when you were 12? I wanted to be Cindy Crawford. <laughs> Literally. It's like, that was my career path. What was your plan to become Cindy Crawford? I didn't. I realized when I went to the doctor that I was never going to be taller than five, seven and that models had to be taller than that. And then mm -hmm. I also realized I was not going to look like Cindy Crawford or anything in that vein. So mm -hmm. that got derailed. Right. So I just interviewed Gene Chatsky from the Today Show with whom you connected me. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. You're, you're living your framework. <laughs> it's authentic. She and others have talked about in their work, the fact that parents intentionally or unintentionally talk to their sons and their daughters differently about money. You happen to have a twin who happens to be a male. Do you think <laughs> that your parents taught you different things or directed your careers differently? I do know they taught us identically because a lot of what they taught me in us is what I put in the kid's book. Mm -hmm. 
And because we were side by side when they were doing like, I remember my mom pulling out compound interest charts with us sitting there. We have another brother as well. And we all sat there learning about, oh, if I'm 18 and I put into my Roth IRA $5,000, by the time I'm 65, if I stopped contributing by age 22, I'd be a millionaire. And we would sit down around the dinner table in middle school. My dad would say, we're going to give you this lump of money and you have to go research what you're going to go invest in and then give us a compelling reason why. This is a funny story, actually. My twin brother came back and said, I want to invest in Berkshire Hathaway A. My older brother said, I want to invest in Apple and Coke. And I said, I want to invest in a mutual fund. (laughs) They did much better than I did. What year was that? Gosh, middle school. So 97 or so. Oh, I was getting my MBA then. Thanks a lot. (laughs) I just graduated from business school. So that's 22 years later. And Berkshire Hathaway is probably up a thousand percent. Gosh, yeah, it, it but really. But your mutual fund would be up what three hundred seven? No, not seven. Oh, but oh, it's like year after 22. year. Oh, that's on an true. annual on basis. An annual. <laughs> well, shit, seven percent. on that's a killer return. Still great, but this really helped them seed their lives. Like they crushed the game. We always joke that it's such an indicator of who we are and how we take risks. In the world. Do you think any of that was gender based, or was it? Jean actually mentioned on the on the interview today that she was tended away from equities or took a more safe path, as do women take more conservative paths in investing than men do. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the data on this talks about how women look at their portfolios way mm-hmm. less than men, but end up doing better than men who often think they can out-trade the market and out-time right. the market. Right. I don't know. I actually think that my brothers were just more keen on getting into the weeds and they were more risk-averse, whereas my dad loves gambling and we would go to casinos. And I remember when we were on like a casino boat where it was legal for us to gamble, he'd say, go play the slot machines. And I would rather just keep the money in my pocket because I knew I wouldn't lose it. And my Mm -hmm. brothers would be like going and playing poker, playing blackjack and winning all this money. But it was just the risk profiles again. Mm -hmm. I was unwilling. So in that stereotypical way, yeah, I was way less risk averse. But to your original question, my parents didn't gender the way that they taught us, nor in the way that they positioned us for our careers. And I'm grateful for that. And I think we've all kind of become our best selves because of that. As you were growing up, you were growing up in an affluent home. What kind of work did your parents do? My dad was an executive in financial services and my mom was an entrepreneur. What area of entrepreneurship? (laughs) Lots. Everything. Well, partially it wasn't entrepreneur. She was a bodybuilder at one point. She was a professional equestrian and ballroom dancer at one point. But then on the business side, yeah, very diverse. Sounds like a reality show at your home. Seriously. I mean, my mom really demonstrated for me the idea of nonlinearity. At the time, Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it and actually really disrespected it because I thought, wow, my dad has had a lifetime career raising to the top of his industry, so well respected. And then I watched my mom seemingly flounder a lot, which I relate to now as an adult. I floundered for a long time with all the jobs I was losing. But now I really respect it. I'm like, she was unafraid and she went after it. And so some of the businesses she had, she started a plus size women's clothing boutique in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. when she was five, two and a hundred pounds in the nineties and plus size clothing wasn't cool. And it wasn't the thing yet. Right. She has had a home flipping company for about 20 years. She had a home staging company for a long time. Mm -hmm. She's done a ton of stuff. There's that HGTV theme. (laughs) Exactly. What was your relationship to money growing up in that home? And when you went off to college, were you thinking about, well, I've got to figure out how to have a career. I need to get a degree. Did you think at all about what you were going to do with your degree when you went off to college? Completely. I was definitely not the trust fund kid. I Mm -hmm. was a silver spoon to the sense of I didn't have to stress. I still had jobs growing up. That was something my parents required. Mm -hmm. They made us pay for a lot of our own stuff, which I thought was really important. Like what kind of stuff? 
like car, car insurance, mm-hmm. like anything extra, like fun funds, like going right. to the movies with your friends, paying for meals with friends, buying clothing. And how did you pay for that? I got jobs. What kind of jobs? My first job was at a snowball stand, which most people don't know what that is, but like fancy shaved ice. Yeah. I babysat, I Mm -hmm. nannied, I worked at a photo mat, you know, I did all sorts of stuff. So you'd worked, made your own money for discretionary items. Exactly. And so you're going off to school. What's in your head? In my head, it's my parents offered to pay my college room and board. Mm -hmm. And the second I graduate, they're cutting me off. Nice. So you better figure this shit out or you're going to be homeless. Did they cut you off immediately? Yeah. Yeah. My parents did too. Yeah. I was terrified. Then you're thinking, okay, I got to go figure it out. Yeah. And then of course, as you said, I studied religion and Italian, which are the most transferable (laughs) skills into modern American careers. I'm in the olive oil importing business. (laughs) Uh, But here's the thing. I actually sold my choice of majors to them by saying, Hey, I already speak French and English and I want to go into fashion. So Italian's the natural next step to speak mm -hmm. the three fashion languages. So thus began my sales career. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. You have to speak Italian to be in the fashion industry. Clearly, I never once used it. If you want to move to (laughs) Milan. Exactly. How do you think about money today? Well, so I didn't fully answer your first question to call myself out. And the way I used to think about money was initially it was you get it, you spend it until my parents taught me otherwise. Mm -hmm. And but then it was really about savings. Like I probably thought about money and the importance of savings to an unhealthy degree Mm -hmm. where I was so squirrely with it that I was afraid to enjoy it. So when I got older and now I'm in a position where I look at money as a tool, I think money is a tool to create the freedom to live the life that you want and to spend your time how you choose to spend it. Mm -hmm. That money in and of itself is a piece of paper that has no intrinsic value that we give value to and place value upon. Sure. One of the things you hear about millennials is that they value experiences over things. Do you buy into that logic? Yes, I do. I mean, I'm that person. Yeah. I mean, you're sitting in my home, you see that I have a nice house, I guess, a decent house. It's awesome. Are you kidding me? I love my house. You haven't seen my closet room yet. I definitely value things in there. Right. But the thing, bottom line, when I look at my bookkeeping every single month that I spend the most money on is travel. Yeah. Like disproportionately more than Mm -hmm. anything else. And that has always been the thing that I care about the most because I feel that I am expanding my mind, that Mm -hmm. I'm experiencing other cultures. I feel creative. It's getting me off my own spot and understanding how other people live and Mm -hmm. experience And those things really are priceless. Yes. And that's why I put all my money into it. Right. Your Instagram is a highly curated travel blog. (laughs) It basically is. With then Trojan horses into captions that'll teach you about the stuff that we're talking about. Yes. You've had a pretty unique journey and you do come from a privileged background and my kids are going to come from, I came from a privileged background, not quite as privileged financially anyway, as the one my my kids are going to come from. So I'm interested about all this stuff as a, you're not a young adult, but you're not, I mean, you're not you're not not young also like <laughs> no well I'm i mean no i don't you're you're not right out of college no anymore. i'm 35 right okay so like you read this stuff about a lot of people from your generation saying well i've never seen what american privilege looks like or i've never seen an economy that's good in america and that is fundamentally incorrect absolutely but there's a lot of people who feel and are financially crippled from hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. These are your peers. Yes. What would you say to them about what they can do with their life? Can they get out from under those burdens? Absolutely, because it really comes back down to the first part of the conversation of what does success look like to you, Mm -hmm. not other people. Right. And typically what we find when people identify it and then put price tags on what it costs to live that life is that it's a lot less expensive than you might think that it is. And that 
if you can reframe your relationship to the debts that you have as this gave me this experience, this helped me build this community or this network, this opened doors to the following, this helped increase my earning capability. And you see it as what it is in those ways, as opposed to this burden, Right. that also deeply affects your outcomes. Because the more that we have these things that feel like weights, the less likely you are to traject yourself into wherever you want to go. Mm -hmm. What would you tell a young person going into college and considering taking on that debt or choosing a field to study relative to the cost of education? It depends on your circumstances mm -hmm. and where you're hoping to go with it. That mm -hmm. if you had to borrow the money and you have absolutely no idea what you want to do on the other side, right. and that's a thing that scares you, like, how am I ever going to pay this back? then I'd say maybe consider going to a school that costs less. Sure. Maybe consider apprenticing a little. Maybe consider having some experiences before you just jump into that. You know, find ways to accomplish what you're looking to do and study those things. Maybe you take a master class online. Maybe, you know, watch right. some YouTube videos. There's different ways to get there. But if you understand and you have the ability to do what I did, which is go to school and learn to learn and have that privilege, mm -hmm. then that's a different story. If school for you is something that you're going because you want the degree and you think it's going to catapult you into something else and you're taking loans out, then I would be really strategic about, am I going somewhere that's located where I'm going to build the right network? Mm -hmm. Am I going to learn the things that I need to learn? And then question, are there other ways to do that? And I'm biased because I loved my college experience. Having nothing to do with what I studied, I think it really helped me prepare myself from just a mental capacity to build into the life that I've created. Right. But that didn't have to be through college. And it definitely didn't have to be at a $200,000 price tag or whatever the hell it cost. Yeah. And so That's I think- what it costs now. Yeah. And so I think for people you Just really- Just for tuition. There's so many people who are successful without college. Yep. And there's plenty of people who are successful with college. You can fall into either category. The choice is yours. As soon as Khan Academy gets fraternities and sororities- that's going to be the solution. You're kind of right. <laughs> I, mean, cause if you can, I mean, seriously, all the knowledge that you get from college is available online. Exactly. It's so much of college is that experience. Right. And that is a little bit hard to replicate in an online environment. Right. And that's also not for everyone. Yeah. Until you can vomit from fraternity punch on Khan Academy. It's just Until not you gonna... can wonder if there's roofies in your beast. Oh what is that stuff so called? Scary. Beast. I don't know. <laughs> oh, you didn't know this. This is one of the beers they always have. Oh, Bush, Bush, oh, Bush light beer. or something. They Bush call light. it beast. <laughs> oh, the beast. Yeah. Well, no, that's Milwaukee's best. Oh, that's the beast. yeah. I do there know you that. Go. There you go. There you go. Let's run the tape out five, 10 years. Where's Dara Brewstein? I'm really going to be a shitty guest in this instance mm -hmm. because because that's such a lame interview well, question. No. <laughs> More importantly, oh my gosh, have you heard the new garbage CD? That's so funny. Um, and now should I be that millennial annoyed. who's like, what is that? No, the reason I'm a bad answer to that question is because my only goal in 2019 was to have less goals mm -hmm. because I was so for so long, so attached to the goals that I had to a default, to the point that even if I didn't want that thing anymore, I had set my sights on it and right. I committed to it. So I was gonna do it come hell or high water. And I often was limiting myself because of it and causing a lot of undue stress. And so honestly, through a lot of the friendship and guidance of Deepak, I've come to realize how much really happens when we're not planning and how much happens effortlessly in our best interest so often that we can miss when we're so stuck on our own need to control things. Yep. So for me, it's on a more macro scale of 
in five to 10 years, I want to be able to say that I am still giving and more so giving of my gifts and skills to the world in a way that's beneficial to other people, Mm -hmm. that I'm still learning and growing, that I'm still traveling, that I'm still in love. Those are things that I hope to be able to say as far as tactically, let's talk in five or 10 years and see what happens. Wow. It's so interesting to hear you say that, you know, the personal guidance of Deepak Chopra, it's like, I think I'm going to hire Lance Armstrong to teach me how to do spin. <laughs> like I'm going to get, I'm going to get uh, a higher Shakespeare I mean, to teach around, me like right? an introductory writing class. <laughs> I'm going to go right Shakespeare to the top. write my Facebook ads. <laughs> go right to the top. I mean, if, if, if Deepak's not available, maybe his holiness, the Dalai Lama could, could step up. <laughs> Dara, tell me a little bit more about what's available at Dara.co. Well, thanks Paul. Dara like Farah. Exactly. Co. Perfect. Dara like Farah.co. So Dara.co. You can, again, get the Masterclass with Deepak Chopra, which has a guided meditation in it, which is all on living a more meaningful life. Mm -hmm. For the entrepreneurs out there, the soon-to-be entrepreneurs, there's a guide called Shit No One Tells You About Starting a Business, (laughs) which I think is really important because people just highlight over it all. They don't tell you about the ups and downs. It can feel super, super lonely. So that's a really important one. And then I mentioned before the 55 best questions to ask to break the ice and really get to know someone. That's on there, as is the guide to better and more effective goal planning. And then there's tons of interviews with celebrities. So if you're looking for people who have paved the path before us, we've got Seth Godin, Robert Herjavec, Bobby Brown, Gene Chatsky, Deepak, Cam Newton, you know, the list goes on and on of people who are taking the curtain off and saying, this is how I did it. This is how you can do it better. Learn from my lessons. That's all on there. Bobby Brown, the rapper. I'm so glad you asked that. (laughs) Normally I say Bobby Brown, the makeup person, not the rapper. And people are like, oh, like I was going to think the other, and I was like, well, I probably would have thought Bobby Brown. Is he rapper. a rapper? I don't think he's technically a rapper. Like he's like R&B. R&B. Yeah, yeah exactly. R&B. Yeah. This is the makeup mogul. All that material is available on Dara.co. Exactly. And where else can people find you? I am prolific on Instagram okay. at Dara B every single day posting a, as you said, glorified travel blog, yes. but basically a cool picture of me somewhere in the world with a really hopefully helpful and uh, valuable caption. Cool. Well, thank you for the kindness you've shown to me. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Have a great one. You too. See ya. Thank you, Dara, for that interesting conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to let us in on some of the secrets of you and your generation. I look forward to seeing what she does over the next 10 years. I think she's going to do some cool stuff. Folks, if you want to see me do some stand-up comedy, tell jokes like that awesome bit about my depression dad, <laughs> come on out. I've got shows coming up in June all over the Atlanta area. You can find me at Finely Crafted Cocktails at Old Fourth Distillery on Wednesday, June 5th. Beer Bellies and Bald Spots Comedy for Men, Dads, and Couples on June 6th in Woodstock, Georgia at Mad Life Studios. Now, while I'm offended by the title of that show because I have both a beer belly, well, a Merlot belly, and a bald spot, as in most of my head, the shows at Mad Life are insane and they're awesome. And Heather, who produces them, does an amazing job. If you're from that area, come over to Woodstock that night. June 8th, Comedy on the Clay in Duluth, Georgia at Eddie Owens Presents. Ten Buck Comedy in Ponzi Highlands at the Highland Inn on June 21st. June 26th, we've got a really special show. You may remember a band from the late 80s, early 90s called Guadalcanal Diary. They're from Marietta, Georgia via Athens, Georgia. And I loved their music. Well, one of their founding members and guitarist, Jeff Walls, passed away last week from a very rare lung disorder. And we're putting on a a comedy benefit for his family to help them cover some of their uncovered medical bills on June 26th at Old Fourth Distillery. And I'm honored to be able to perform on a, a show benefiting an artist whose work meant so much to me in the past. 
Also, I'll be on uh, Best of Atlanta at Laughing Skull Lounge on both June 28th and 29th. Y'all come out. Why don't you? Also, if you like the podcast as much as I like doing it, do me a favor. Head over to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you find this podcast goodness. Leave us a juicy rating of as many stars as you can morally compromise yourself into leaving. Also, if you could take just a few minutes and write us a review, it does a really good job in helping people find our podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.